Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. I'm doing pretty well myself. Joe and I just arrived back from our holiday in Japan, and it was absolutely amazing. We didn't quite get to do as much yoga as I would have liked, but we did manage to fit in an interview with Taruki and Yoko Nakano. Taruki and Yoko recently translated Jivana Heyman's upcoming book, Accessible Yoga, into Japanese. So it was wonderful to meet them and learn all about them and their mission to bring accessible yoga to Japan. I have to say, though, I was out just before recording this intro, heading to the supermarket, and I literally stumbled across a climate change march just around a corner from my house. And it really made me think about the role I play. Obviously, international air travel uses a lot of fossil fuels, which is kind of bad, and I have mixed feelings about our trip overseas as a consequence of this. I'd really like to hear your thoughts, though. You can comment on our website, podcast.flowartist.com, or leave a comment in our group, the Flow Artist Podcast Community, on Facebook. Now, today's episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and Swami Shantananda, more casually addressed as Mataji, formerly known as Jani Baker. Mataji was the second president of Yoga Australia back when it was known as the Yoga Teachers Association. I really enjoyed our conversation with Mataji, and I think she provides a great example of how Yoga Australia really is an organisation made up of many voices and opinions, which I think is really important. Now, Mataji was kind enough to send us through some notes before the interview, and I'll leave a link in our show notes. All right, just before we get on with our interview, I wanted to let you know about something I'll be doing in the very near future. I'll be teaching a chair yoga class for seniors at Brunswick Baths on Wednesday afternoons at two o'clock. I'm super excited about this because it means I'll be teaching an accessible class in a fully accessible venue, and I think that's really important. Best of all, it's free for the whole month of October. So if you know someone you think might benefit from this, please let them know. Love to have them join the fun. All right, that is more than enough from me. Let's get on to our conversation with Swami Shantananda. All right, well, Swami Sh- uh, Shantanan. Oh, sh- sorry. <laughs> Let's have a good, good start. <laughs> yeah. I was named Swami Shantananda. Shantananda. Actually, when my guru did name me, he offered me Swami Yogananda. And I said, I don't like it. (laughs) So he offered me Swami Jananananda. And I said, I don't like that either. And so he said, hmm, what about Swami Shantananda? I said, that's lovely. Now that's quite unusual because gurus give you the name and that's that. But for some reason, maybe he was a bit afraid of me, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He offered me three, three chances and I chose Shantananda. I wonder how many more you could reject until he was just like, this is your name. I think patience would have dropped fairly soon after that. And Shantananda means the bliss of peace. So it's, I've found it a quite a contemplative thing over the years. And uh, I do think I'm a little less feisty than I was <laughs> beforehand. Anyway, but since then, most people, almost everybody calls me Mataji, which means mum. <laughs> nice. And as I've got older, that feels very good too, so... Mostly I'm called Mataji and uh, I sign my letters Mataji and I respond to Mataji. Before I became a Swami, before I took sannyas, 
I was Mrs. Janet Baker, but normally called Johnny Baker because my guru also gave me the name Johnny. And Johnny, once I became Johnny, I found that Janet, which was a name that I actually had quite liked as a child, I found that that was so harsh compared to Johnny. I couldn't believe that Jay's similar names had such a different quality about them. And again, I felt different when I began to call myself Johnny from when I'd called myself Janet. When I took sannyas, I said to my husband, I don't want to be married anymore. I want to be Swami Shantananda. Can you support me in that? Oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> Well, it didn't go exactly like that, but yeah. So Rob has been a very supportive and loving. He did understand, and when I changed my name legally to Swami Shantananda, you know, there was no doubt anymore about where my perspective on life was, and he's been very supportive, and I thank him a great deal for that. When you take a new name as a Swami, do you want to explain about the significance of why people do that? As I mentioned to you, I think I didn't, I didn't ask to be a Swami. You don't apply to be a Swami, not in my tradition anyway. And the point about becoming a Swami, my point of view is that you, you relinquish your sense of neediness and part of your neediness is to identify yourself through social relationships and social attitudes and conventional social perspectives and so on. And so if I were to continue to be Mrs. Somebody, then I'm not relinquishing much Whereas lose your hair, start wearing orange clothes and have a strange name, particularly in Australia, you can't help but consider the things by which you've made yourself comfortable by your neediness for relationships. Now, some would say that that means that you ought to abandon all your relationships. Well, I think that's cruel to the people that you're abandoning. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to abandon those who love you and whom you love and it may be that those who love you have some neediness for you and they haven't gone on the path of relinquishing that sense of neediness. So if I've gone on the path of relinquishing the sense of neediness, do I also have to abandon in a cruel way those who have some need of me? So I find it quite easy to walk that sort of middle path. This might be backtracking a little bit, but would you like to tell us about your background growing up as Janet, perhaps? <laughs> well, Janet grew up as a Catholic and she went to school up here from where we're sitting just now. And the thing is that for me, I have always had, I can't remember a time where I did not have a sense of, a sense of presence, you know, without having to name or define or call on that presence. I always did feel a sense of presence when I went to school not surprisingly, that innate spirituality began to be channeled along doctrinal lines and I became a very good Catholic. Sometime down the track, I felt quite disillusioned with it because, you know, as I said, I had been a very good Catholic girl. <laughs> and at a certain point in my life, I felt very, well, I suppose it was depression. Well, it was depression, no doubt about that. I felt as though life wasn't worth living. And something said to me, well, if I have done all the right things, if I've been the good little girl and abided by all of the teachings and it comes to this, something is wrong somewhere, whether that's something wrong in my practice or whether it's something wrong in the teachings or whether it's something wrong in the way that I was taught the teachings, something did not work. And that level of quite deep depression when I was, uh, I don't know, 28, something like that, that liberated me actually from clinging to the doctrinal aspects of Catholicism. And not long after that, well, a few years after that, I discovered meditation. And once I began to still my mind, you begin to see, you begin to see the processes of your mind and you see the 
the, the things that the mind's holding on to. And so, you know, life became a bit different, well, a lot different. And while for a while I was angry with my Catholic experience, I'm no longer angry with it, it's just part of <laughs> the life that I've had. But those processes in my mind that said that's real and that's not, that's all changed. Now there's a, a recognition that we project out onto life what we think reality is, and reality is always different from what you're thinking. And so to be able to soften your thought-based outlook on life and simply be okay with reality as it is without having to define it. <laughs> That's just a little bit different from how I grew up thinking about life. And so was your discovery of meditation your way out of that <coughs> deep depression or was there another turning point? No, actually one of the one of the things for which I'll be eternally grateful was, as I said, you know, Rob's a very nice and supportive man. I, I chose well from the beginning, I think. Anyway, when I was so depressed, I dragged him off to marriage counselling, because why not blame the person that you're living with, you know? And at point there in the marriage counselling, which was only six weeks, the counsellor asked, fortunately he asked Rob first, then he was going to ask, he would always ask us the same questions. And fortunately for me, he asked Rob first, and he asked Rob, what would it take to make you happy? And I'm sitting there, and sitting there, this one says, I want her to make me happy. And her is sitting there thinking, what? This was a sudden flash of insight. You know, insight doesn't do all the work. You have to do the work after you've had the insight. But that flash of insight that somebody who's not like me, he's male, he didn't grow up Catholic, he's got a scientific mathematical sort of mind, I've got a literature philosophical sort of mind, and yet he wants to put his happiness invested in the decisions that I would make for him. I don't think so. And likewise... Would I expect that from him? But, you know, you don't hear those expectations in a relationship. We, we don't sort out relationships. We just plunge into them. And so when I saw that in this sudden flash of insight, when the fellow asked me the same question, I said, well, I don't want to make him happy and I don't want him to make me happy either, but I would like it if we can find a way to be happy together. Now, that was a different sort of ball game, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so that was, a, that was the thing that was a turning point prior to meditation. So from there, I began to take responsibility for my own mental state. So instead of, you know, I'm so miserable, why can't it all finish and blah, 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 it was, ah, what can I do about this? And so if I began to feel a bit depressed or whatever, or if I began to move towards a state that was less than well-functioning, I would move myself out of it. And I did begin to relate better, better better wife, better mother, better employee. After that is when I began to do that sort of work on myself. That is when I began to work in a professional way because I was promoted out of clerical work and into professional work and made a huge difference in all sorts of ways. And it was another seven years before I learned to meditate. So seven years later, about that anyway, somebody who knows what I'm like took me to a to a meditation centre, well, to a yoga foundation. But I think I said to you that yoga foundations back in the day didn't teach, didn't teach asana. And they looked happy. The people at this place looked happy. I mean, I was, I call it functionally happy. I had become functionally happy. I could function happily and take responsibility for my own state of mind. But that deep happiness wasn't there. And these guys, guys and girls, looked happy. So I said, why are you happy? And the friend who took me said the unhappy ones were locked away upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I asked them, why are you happy? And they said, because we meditate. So I thought, well, that's pretty good. I, I want that too. 
So off I went by myself to meditate and I didn't understand. I just thought meditation was something that you did to get happy and I wanted that. And I thought, I've got a good mind, I can do that too. But I couldn't. Instead I had all sorts of weird experiences and not very comfortable either. So since I've had these weird experiences, I thought, is that meditation? If that's meditation, I don't think I need that, thank you very much. So I went back to that foundation, that's where I met my meditation teacher. And although he didn't sit me down and do a course in how to meditate, it wasn't long before I understood from being there that to meditate, in this traditional way anyway, still mind meditation, you might meditate for a purpose, but once you meditate, you have to let go of the purpose. So if my purpose was I wanted to become happy, at the time I was meditating, I had to let go of the mind that wanted to be happy. And then happiness comes. And so it's all very back to front. What did you ask me? <laughs> I think... I asked you about your path out of depression and whether yeah. meditation was, was it, that. Well, and it sounds like it was to a deeper level. It was at a much deeper level. But I'm grateful for that psychological intervention that allowed me to actually do some work on my mind, with my mind, on my mind, before I found out how to observe my mind instead of just having to be always in the forefront of the mind. And so was that moment, because it was such a powerful realisation for you, what led you to want to become a teacher? Or is there a whole other story no, I think there? No, I, I think I already was. I, I, I get the times mixed up a little bit now. But no, I think you're right, actually. I think I learned to meditate and then I wanted to be a yoga teacher and, and a meditation teacher uh, because I learned to meditate when I was 34 and I became a yoga... I took the training when I was 40. So, yes, it must have been... That must have been instrumental in wanting me wanting to do that and to leave professional marketing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which would still serve you well in the life of a yoga teacher because you pretty much have to be a one-person business. Uh, yeah, you have to do everything, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> there is that. On your path of yoga, who, who were your key teachers? The person who taught me at Warrigal didn't have a great deal to, to teach me in any deep way. She was very good at the asana and so I went to her classes twice a week and then we would have a little shavasana at the end which you would call relaxation when in fact shavasana means the corpse pose. So why would they call it the corpse pose? Why would the ancient yogis talk about becoming a corpse and not that not be meaningful in any way? So I got a bit sick of that sort of thing. And Joy Spencer, the person who gave me yoga teacher training, no anatomy, no philosophy, no meditation, just training in asana, that was it back then, was for me anyway. So the yoga teachers that I've had, and I can't remember them over all of them that I've had over the years, but the only one that I ever remember talking about meditation was Pam, somebody or other, who was a teacher at Mangala. I don't know if Mangala still exists, it was in Carlton. It does in Doesn't some it? ways, because I went to Mangala to do creative dance when did I was you? a really little kid. And then oh, I did when you were a little one. Yeah, yeah, then I did okay. inkbrush painting there. Mm -hmm. So Mia, it was also a creative dancer. She's now taken over the lease and the building, but the spirit of the space lives on through her. Okay. And Peter still teaches <coughs> his classes there. And a lot of the other Mangala teachers are now teaching out of a hall in Thornbury. Like that's where they're doing the kids' dance classes as well. Oh, fancy that. Well, wow. Oh, is, that's nice to hear. Is Richard Lidicat still? Yeah, yeah. So Richard mm -hmm. is still teaching inkbrush painting and mm -hmm. he, he teaches an amazing workshop called The Unfolding Self, which is a combination of pranayama and meditation and calligraphy and inkbrush painting. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not have a lot? Hmm. Anyway, Pam from Mangala, that I, call it, I, I would call it Mangala, she was the only yoga teacher who had us all sitting down 
as cross-legged as anybody could, to meditate for a few minutes. And it was only for a few minutes. I thought, gee, this is different. <laughs> so when I took yoga teacher training, even though there wasn't any in my training, with yoga training actually, but I had already had so many years of experience in... Once I started to meditate, I meditated for an hour twice a day for the first year, and after that, an hour a day, pretty well every day since. Of course, they're going to be misses. But my regular and constant practice has been an hour a day. Now, nobody really told me to do that. I just did. And I just did because there was a payoff for it. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. So it seems it has seemed strange to me that people would say, well, can I meditate for five minutes or something like that? Anyway, so when I began to teach yoga myself, I vowed and declared that I would not teach yoga without real meditation in it. Now, I didn't get that from any of my training. I got it from the other side, from my meditation understanding and that I mixed with people who meditated, really, <laughs> who really and truly meditated. And so when I began to read and consider the history of yoga in Australia and I saw how minimal it really was and where yoga had come from, then I thought, well, how did it how did it lose all that in translation? And I, I think it must have because when there were a half a dozen old ladies, well, actually they're beginning to die now, but there were for a long time there were six or seven old ladies who had brought yoga to Australia back in the late 50s, which is where the Women's Weekly got it from probably. And they must have experienced meditation over in India themselves because they brought it from India. However, perhaps they found that a very parochial, small-minded Australia in the late 50s just wasn't able to understand meditation and so they brought out this nice stuff and, <laughs> and we'll have a little relaxation at the end. I, I don't know. I really don't know how it lost its origins. But when it came to the being part of the Yoga Teachers Association, I was the loud voice for saying, well, we have to include more than just a minimalist approach to what yoga is if we're going to represent yoga in Australia. And so would you like to tell us a little bit about the beginnings of Yoga Teachers Association and how you got involved? Yes, I, I was teaching yoga by then and somebody came to my yoga class, uh, and whose name I'm sorry I've forgotten, and she was very, <laughs> she was very good. So normally, you know, you're teaching people how to do a forward bend, how to do a cobra, how to do this, you know, the benefits of this, the benefits of that. Well, she was all over that. <laughs> she didn't need any of that. And I thought, hmm. But she never said anything else. She just said, I'd like to learn yoga from you. Anyway, then after a term, she announced that she was already a yoga teacher herself and that she was part of a group who was setting up a yoga association. And would I come along and... Come, by come along, actually, she also meant, and I'd like to nominate you for membership of the committee. <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> anyway, so in the short story, I was on the first committee as a committee member and I was surprised. I was going to say gobsmacked. Perhaps I was gobsmacked. I found it surprising <laughs> that not everybody had the same understanding of yoga as I did. Well, I wasn't really surprised because I knew. I knew from the yoga teachers that I'd had. I knew from the yoga training that I'd had that yoga in Australia was, as I would call it now, minimalist. I might have had ruder names for it back then. As I said, I've become a little less feisty over the years. So if I was going to be in a committee, on a committee at all for a yoga association, I wasn't going to waste my time by being timid. So I said some, you know, some things about how we have to include the spirituality of yoga and you'd be told, you can't say that. Well, I think we can say that, but we wouldn't have said that if I'd said, oh, all right. 
So I don't know whether other people think that I was significant in those years or not. But it seemed to me that there weren't too many voices talking for the traditional and the spiritual and the meditative in yoga. And they must have appreciated your opinions because you ended up being president. <laughs> yes, that's, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> yes, so I became the second president. And I mentioned, I think, to you both already that to be the president of an association that's just beginning takes a lot of work. <laughs> it's not as though you've got an established foundation that you're doing something to maintain and evolve a little bit, develop a little bit. Everything's new. And, you know, the, those of us who worked together on committees and subcommittees, on the committee and subcommittees, we were bloody, we were very, <laughs> we were very busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Uh, and what we were busy doing, well, <clears throat> to tell you the truth, I can't remember anymore. One of them was getting people actually to enrol and then getting them to re-enrol. And, you know, the, I remember speaking to somebody that I was on the su- subcommittee for membership with and we were, ah, gee, we're going to look a bit silly if we've set up this association. Nobody wants to join. Anyway, so <laughs> there, were some, there were some moments. Something that I would say was very good about it, actually, although it was difficult at the time, was that all of us in that first committee put our attitudes out and did argue for them one way or another. I don't mean to be argumentative. It may be that I was argumentative, but by and large, <clears throat> a group of people with disparate attitudes but with a love of yoga sat down together and worked out how we were going to represent yoga in Australia, what were the parameters of an association, how we could function as a yoga association. And it was, yeah, it was it was interesting and it was absorbing. And it was, as I say, there was a bit of argy-bargy, but it was everybody trying to find their way to a unified association. And uh, amazing. <laughs> it must have been a bit of a chicken and egg situation if... The association is just forming and you're inviting people to join, but you need some resources to make mm, anything happen yeah, so you don't right. have too much to offer and them. And the resources the were just us. You know, mm. there, there really wasn't any other resources. And so what do you see the most important function of an association like Yoga Teachers Association or Yoga Australia, as it's called mm. now, being? Well, I think one of its major functions anyway is to protect what yoga is. And there was a period in my tenure as president where the fitness association wanted to say well we have yoga in gyms we want to teach our own yoga people why should you do it why should we have to hire yoga teachers through you you know they come and teach in our our gyms and because we already had our thing together a bit by then we were able to say no yoga is a very old practice and there are issues about doing postures and some of the aspects of yoga that you really have to understand before you teach it well. Otherwise, we'd only be teaching calisthenics. And so we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't already done the work of thinking about what our parameters were, of thinking about how we were going to present it, of thinking about the the long, the very long history of yoga, much longer than any one of us had, and much longer than yoga in Australia. So, you know, I think I think that was really good. And I think the um, the association, as it evolves, as it continues to evolve, has to keep that in mind, to keep that in mind that they are actually an Australian body that practices and represents something that is much older than themselves. And it's not just a matter of the local yoga class or the local yoga teacher. It is much less a practice, which is anybody who thinks it's what it is, that's what it is, you know, that you can just say yoga is what you think it is. I I think that's very inappropriate. 
Hello, Ran here, just popping in to let you know about our Patreon page. What is Patreon, I hear you say? Why, thank you for asking. Patreon is just a simple way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 a month. Higher tiers get shout-outs on the podcast and a listing on our website. We also have special content just for our supporters, and we use some of the funds to have our favourite episodes transcribed for the hearing impaired, or just as a written resource for anyone to access. Our transcriptions are done by our wonderful friends at Wordslice. We recently had our episode with Michael DeManning called Transcribed, so check that out on our website at podcast.flowartist.com. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Swami Shantananda. So it almost sounds like in the early days, did the Yoga Teachers Association function as a bit of an employment agency as well? Like no, they, no, no, I don't think it ever did. No, it never functioned that way. Pretty soon people were wanting membership of the association. It didn't take very long, actually, for us to get over that concern about what if nobody comes <laughs> because people did want to come. They wanted an association to represent them. They wanted to be able to say they were part of a professional association. They wanted to get insurance. What we did do early on, I don't know if it's still the case, but what we did early on was find an insurer that they could go to and be sure that their uh, membership gave them proper insurance. So I think that all of that was important. What did you ask me again? No, I think I was just clarifying when you mentioned how there's a little bit of a... the fitness industry was mm. trying to just train oh, yeah. their own teachers. Yeah, so... so Yeah, so if we were going to say to the industry, the fitness industry, oh, no, what we do is the same as what you do, but we can have it and you can't, yeah, that's, that would be nonsensical. So, yeah, so we have to... We do have to maintain it. And then I think you asked me, well, what does the association do for people or something like that? So Well, actually, two questions, because I think I said what was the mission of Yoga Australia and the other side of that coin is mm. what does it do for its members? Yeah, and it okay. seems like one side of this is mm. about honouring the tradition of yoga and the other side of this is about individual teachers' mm. rights and professional qualifications. I don't know at this moment now what the mission statement is. We, we did come at one back way back then. And I can't remember what that is now either. I'd have to go and find... Oh, I think, it, I think it's on their website if is anyone it? at home wants to check it out. <laughs> well, as I mentioned. I yeah, and I think I your personal mission ex- is what we're excited about mm. today. Well, what is their mission today? Shall I pull it up? <laughs> sure. Okay, back to you with the Yoga Australia mission. To ensure the integrity, tradition and longevity of yoga is maintained by developing, implementing and supporting professional standards and practice. Yeah, that's good. When we started, and Lee was in that first, in fact, it was Lee's idea to get started. In fact, he's the one who started it all. But we certainly wanted standards. The rest of the mission statement was where we had a lot of argument, well, a lot of discussion together. So it's nice to see that there is the acknowledgement of the tradition. And as I say, without that, how are you going to say that yoga is different from what they do in gyms? Mm. From only what people do in gyms, I mean. And I think it very much reflects the mind state of yoga as a practice where Mm. it's not just a set of rules that are going to work for everyone. It's everyone's own self-study and own experience Mm. of these principles and these practices. Unless you actually do it, you don't get it. Mm. Yeah, so is it a religion? 
No. <laughs> no, it's not a religion. Uh, that's, a, that's such a big difference too. Catholicism was a religion and you had to believe certain things. In yoga and meditation, you find out by letting go of your mental constructs that hold you down. So once you begin to look past them, you're simply okay with reality as it is. Now, reality as it is... It's different from reality as you think it is. You make sense of that if you like. <laughs> that would take us into a long, long discussion. But, um, but yeah, so it's not a matter of taking on beliefs. It's much more a matter of letting go of those false beliefs about how life is and how you are and how other people are and what should be. I mean, it sounds as though I'm saying about what, I, what things should be, but in fact I'm saying they shouldn't be other things. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I probably sound as though I'm saying the association should be this, it should be that, it should be the other. And really, that's not an attitude that I have. What I'm saying is that an association that doesn't do X, Y and Z, like you know, maintain the tradition and so on, is easy pickings for people who don't have any understanding at all. Now, how do you have that without a set of beliefs. Well, basically you can. It's the other set of beliefs that come intruding. I don't know how you can make any sense of this, so I'll just stop here now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, perhaps you could tell us what led your decision to become the president of Yoga Australia? Mm, that's hard to remember, Rain. Uh, well, I was nominated for one thing, mm -hmm. and I don't remember if other people nominated as well. They may have. So I think the better question is, why do people want me? Mm -hmm. I don't know why they wanted me. <laughs> why did I? Well, I did because I had a passion for yoga. But I don't know. That, that's, a, that's something that I've never asked myself, why, they, why I was nominated and elected as president and then given a two-year tenure when I asked for it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me that uh, you, you, know, you have a obviously very deep understanding of yoga and perhaps that's something they wanted to infuse their organisation with. Perhaps. And you, you had um, a voice that was willing to offer your opinions. Oh, yeah, well, I, I certainly would accept that I've probably been articulate in a way that comes from considering things that other people might not have considered. So if you haven't begun, if a person, any sort of situation, if a person hasn't begun to consider them, the issues of a situation, then they're not going to be able to be articulate about it, are they? Mm. So that was perhaps something, um, but that came from long before the association happened upon me. And so you must have seen the yoga Melbourne landscape really evolve through your time, mm. beginning your own teachings and then... Oh, yes. You know, when I began teaching, anybody could teach. I think that's one of the benefits that the association has brought to yoga, that people get proper teaching now. Something that's happened in the time since I began teaching myself too is that anatomy, good anatomy training has now become part of the association, a part of yoga teacher training. When I was when I started training yoga teachers myself, I didn't have any background in anatomy and I really missed it. And I was looking, I was trying to find anatomy. So, you know, you get these big books that just pointed out all the muscles and so on, but it took a long time to find the first book that I that came out during the time that I was began training people was a book by um, Richard Coulter. You know that one? What's the title? The name sounds familiar. Don't remember the title. Sorry, oh, no. it was, it was he was an academic physiologist, and so the book was quite academic, which suited me, but didn't suit everybody that I said get this book. <laughs> but not long after that, 
Not long after Richard called her, there began to be much better books and uh, the key muscles of yoga and things like that mm-hmm. came out. And easy enough for anybody to begin to think about, well, how are these things working? Because people began to get better anatomy training as part of their yoga teacher training, yoga teachers were no longer saying weird and strange things. For instance, just possibly, don't do a forward bend if you're menstruating or things like that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. weird things. Or do this and you'll never get a cold or whatever. I don't know. But the, but the sort of, I'd have to go and find some examples, but they're readily enough found, examples of old notions of the benefits of yoga. Now, they may have come indeed from Indian yoga teachers. However, is that the same as the, the tradition? No, I don't think so. Ignorance is ignorance. And in India, there was no, there were no post-mortems, there were no dissections of cadavers. Nobody knew anything about muscles or um, the inner workings of the body. So is it possible for modern understanding to improve yoga teaching? Yes, anatomy and physiology being one of them. But that's not the same as saying that, well, it's all, you know, throw it all out and start again. It's just mm-hmm. one aspect that, you know, that was deficient in the, in the old ways. But that's, everybody has quads. Everybody has hamstrings. Everybody has a spinal column. There are some things that you can say categorically, this is so for everybody. But if you're going to do a mudra, you cannot say you will, you will experience this when you do this mudra. That's subjective, whereas, you know, bringing your hands like this, everybody has hands like this. Okay, so this is how you do that. That part is the same for everybody, but what am I going to experience from it? Well, that's subjective, whereas anatomy and physiology is objective. It's the same for everybody. So if something the same is, is the same for everybody, it can be studied and taught. So once, once we begin to understand that there's a difference between the objective body and the subjective experience, and we recognise the difference between processes in yoga that take us to a deeper experience of self and perhaps even to an exploration of what self is, that is deep and profound and traditional and cannot be lost, something that is easily taught and is objective and has limits like anatomy and physiology, then that can be taught too. And the one doesn't stop the other from being true. So the objective and the subjective both have their place in yoga, whereas perhaps from a gym perspective, it's only the objective, it's only what the muscles are doing, it's only what the spine's doing and you don't take any allowance, make, don't make any allowance for personal subjective experience. So that's just another issue, I think. But I think that's a long way from where we started this conversation. Oh, and there is a lot of room to meander. <laughs> and I think a little thread that I'm getting from what you're saying as well, which kind of comes back to your early experiences of yoga in Melbourne and even those early yoga texts is how much can be lost in translation Mm. because, like, in Ayurveda, like, there is a branch of Ayurveda that deals with surgery and I think that probably there was quite a nuanced and detailed understanding of how the human body body functions Mm. but then distilling that down into a book Mm. and into a different language perhaps maybe oversimplified some of the principles and then I think maybe it could be a similar lost in translation transition when people brought this practice back from India to Melbourne and maybe in an effort to make it more palatable or just something that people could wrap their heads around it got a little bit reductionist. Probably did yeah yeah I'm sure that's so and I think something that was also reductionist 
is over the centuries that yoga was taught, it probably simplified and simplified and simplified and simplified too. Whereas perhaps individual teachers over the centuries, some had a great gift and others just chatted. <laughs> There's another interesting... Mimicked. Yeah, I can't remember where you were telling me about this, mm-hmm. but it's one of the challenges in translating texts from ancient languages, the unspoken assumptions, mm. the things that people were just thought was such a given, they didn't need to put it in the text because it was people's everyday well, understanding. That's right. And that goes, that works two ways, you know. You asked me about the Yoga Sutras. When you read the Yoga Sutras, you will easily find if you look for it anyway, you'll easily find where somebody hasn't looked really deeply into the sutras because they have a ready-made understanding and that becomes the premise on which they explore the sutras and it can be sometimes pretty boring. Whereas if you go back to the actual Sanskrit and the definitions that Patanjali gives and the structure of the sutras, you may find a different story altogether. An example is The Eight Limbs of Yoga. I've seen many, many, many books and articles that say blah, 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 you know, the yamas, the niyamas, the asana, the pranayama, the pratyahara and so on. And then the last one, samadhi, as though samadhi were sort of heaven. Well, once you go back to the sutras, you find that the preamble to that has been he's talking about the afflictions of the mind. And the afflictions of the mind are ignorance, the sense of self, the clinging to the things that we like and the, the push away from the don't, what we don't like, which is the polarisation of the mind, grab and push, grab and push, grab and push, and the desire to live forever. Now, if you don't understand that that's what he's talking about when he talks about these, he's, to, he's saying, or the sutras are saying, you know, nobody really knows about Patanjali, but the sutras as they are now are saying that these eight limbs are a way of reducing these afflictions of the mind. And the purpose of the, of the sutras in the long run is to become free of it all, kavalya. So you don't get that. You don't get it unless you look again at what is actually being said. So the other side of that is that Sanskrit had, because they had been studying these things for centuries, thousands of years before the society that we're currently in began to look at them. We were just ignorant of what self is. We were ignorant of even the look to see what being might actually be as opposed to our idea of ourselves. That is not something that our society has explored. But this other society did explore it and started their explorations several thousand years ago, so they've had plenty of time to evolve a language for it. We haven't got it. The nearest we can come to their word asmita, if a a teacher in Patanjali's time, or perhaps even in in India now, I don't know, but certainly in Patanjali's time, if he said asmita, everybody would understand. There's being, and then there's my sense of being martyrji. That sense of being martyrji, that's asmita. They wouldn't have to say all that. The nearest we can get to it now is a psychological term, the self-construct. But there is, even then, even though we can say, well, Mataji might be my self-construct, there isn't anybody saying, well, who, who the hell is saying that? You know, Who is saying Mataji is my self-construct? Who's that one? What's that one? What's the awareness of that self-construct? What is that? Because that awareness isn't doing the constructing. 
in here is doing the constructing. Well, we haven't got any language for that and it's very difficult for people to get it. It's very difficult to put it into language that people can get too. But in another era and another society, if you had some of those words, if you had words like asmita and ahamkara, ahamkara is the mind's tendency to create a sense of self, which is asmita. Well, I can say that in English, but when I say it in English, people are scratching their head and saying, what's she talking about? What? 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 <laughs> and in fact, I had one person in a yoga teacher training once, and I said something like that too, and she was out of there, the only one ever. She was out. What? <laughs> she said she was out. Because she likes, she wasn't going to do that sort of exploration. Everybody else will explore it a bit. But it takes them about six months to be able to have a conversation about it. For a while, they just gobsmacked. Because all of our perspectives on self are, this is me, this is what I like, this is what I want. Oh, yes, I'm going to do that now and I'm going to be a good yoga teacher. Yep, that's what I want. Okay, well, that's Asmita. For potentially, it was simple. You say, Asmita. Oh. But we haven't got it. So, yeah, so there's two sides to it. When I was doing my training, it was always like self with a little S or self with a big S. That's one way of getting at it, yeah. As the only problem is that self with the big S is so easily mistaken for S with the, S with the little S with a promotion. And also it's a whole sentence to say mm. one mm. word, like it's pretty clumsy yeah. and it still isn't quite expressing yeah. the full it richness of that it, concept. No. And the only way to get it is to meditate in stillness, not to meditate with, oh, I'm going to meditate to, to reach my goals now, <laughs> but rather to meditate and let go of everything. And then when you let go of everything, you might begin to see the processes of the mind. You can't just sit down and go, right, I'm going to put aside half an hour and understand the nature of the universe <laughs> and yeah, my connection to all it is. Absolutely. <laughs> Done that. Ding, timer went off, I'm set. <laughs> Actually, a friend of mine posted on Facebook a while ago saying essentially that that's what they were planning to do and I had to say, well, mm. I don't think, maybe start a little bit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe notice what you're doing when you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. I think I can speak for both of us when I say we've enjoyed uh, delving into your blog and you've obviously written extensively. Is writing part of your process when it comes to exploring philosophy and life or do you tend to write in response to a need that you notice like something someone might ask you? Sometimes people have asked me and whether they read it or not, I consider what they've said and they write it down, whether they read it or not. Sometimes I'll notice some something that's been going on that I think, well, what's brought that about? And so that'll that'll bring about something. And sometimes I just like to write. I always have. And I tell you something really, really, really private and personal. I've had a fetish for notebooks all my life. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was a kid, I used to, before I would buy a novel, I'd look to see how many spare pages there were at the end, the, the, the end leaves. Because if I found myself on a desert island, I wanted some blank paper and a pen pencil. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but I've always felt writing was a natural expression for me. And in writing, I do discover deeper processes myself. That's mainly how I got a deeper understanding of the sutras was by beginning to write notes for yoga teachers. And when I first started teaching, the only translation and commentary that I was happy with to, to, to give my trainees was Despande, the authentic yoga sutras which was no longer in print. And he's rather intellectual about what he says anyway. And this was before you could put Sanskrit into print. You know, the, the amazing things that we can do with computers now are extraordinary. So he had 
he only had translations rather than the, the original Sanskrit. So because of the deficiencies, that, as <laughs> I told you I was feisty back then. <laughs> Everybody else was deficient. <laughs> so I began, and also for copyright purposes, I began to write notes of what the sutras were about bit by bit. And as I did, you know, it's, an old, it's an old truism, isn't it, that you, you learn what you teach. And uh, the more I taught the sutras and asked people to consider and at the same time to meditate, they began to see things that they wouldn't have seen if I just said go and read a book. Mm. But I also began to see more deeply into the sutras too. Something and to be grateful there for me. I suppose as well the process of trying to explain something to someone that they're not understanding mm. really stretches your own it did, depth yes. of knowledge about it. It made me it made me reach for language. Yeah, it made me reach for language because even while, even if I felt that I understood things like ahimsa and ahamkara, they had no Sanskrit. They didn't. They didn't know. Who cares? Asmita. Who cares about that? You know. So. So I had to find a way to communicate something that I had an understanding of myself intuitively that I didn't need to translate to myself, but I had to do that, yeah. So it was very um, a very broadening process for me, broadening and deepening. I'm not sure if you still teach physical asana-based, but full yoga mm. classes no, today. No, I, I stopped teaching yoga classes eight or nine years ago, and now I've got very stiff... <laughs> And I'm sorry that I gave it up. Look, I'll tell you, the reason that I took yoga teacher training was so that I would go to yoga classes. Um, I mentioned to you that I, I've never had any trouble continuing to meditate because it must have been self, self-motivating, self-rewarding. Whereas anything else, if there's not some external, extrinsic motivation, I just don't turn up. Too hot, won't go. Too cold, won't go. Want a cup of tea now, won't go. Whereas if you're the yoga teacher, you have to turn up to the classes. (laughs) That's why I took... And as I said, you know, back then, yoga as I experienced it was not exactly inspiring. So one of the reasons that I took yoga teacher training was, A, I was determined to teach meditation along with the yoga classes, even though I didn't get training from my specific trainer, but I got plenty from other places, from the ashram and then also from Angola. So I I took yoga teacher training in order to make sure that I went to yoga. As well as that, I wanted to teach meditation along with proper yoga. And when I didn't need to or didn't want to do that anymore because I was teaching meditation and training meditation teachers, yes, the inevitable happened. I stopped going to yoga classes. (laughs) (laughs) Had a cup of tea instead. (laughs) I do 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 weights three times a, a week and without that I think I would be in a real physical mess. And I think it's a very nuanced skill to be able to lead a class that brings in all aspects of yoga, the mm. philosophy as well as the physical, mm. in an amount of time mm. that people have yeah. and also not too much head stuff that will mm. pull people out of the present yeah, moment. all of that at once, you know. We, I used to, our classes, my classes were an hour and a half because I wanted to allow for the rest. But I don't know how people would fit it all into an hour because you just, they've just got settled in and done a few postures and then they're out the door. And that's something about the gyms too. There's no room to teach meditation in a gym class. And, you know, the, 
all of the clatter of the things outside, there's not much respect for it either. Oh, I tell you though, like, because I do teach at gym, like yeah. I've taught at gyms and I still teach a couple of classes at gyms. I just like put aside that 10 minutes at the end of the hour. Mm. And if you can meditate in a noisy gym, like... <laughs> you can meditate well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the I beauty... do teach people actually <laughs> that you can't make the world stop in order to meditate. Exactly. If you need a, a perfectly quiet, tranquil space to meditate, <laughs> like, well, that's, you know, <laughs> that's not going to help you that much in everyday no, life. A bit hard for people, and I think the beauty of leading a class in gym is you get to see a real diversity of different ages, mm. different backgrounds. People who might not feel comfortable walking into a yoga studio will check out a class at a gym because yeah. they're already a member. Yeah, I, I know a few people who, who have, yeah. That's how they came to, eventually came to yoga teach training. Yeah. Now, if they'd been in the gym, they'd have gone to the gym for the training mm. and they would have got the exercise aspect and that's all. We should probably take it back to Yoga Australia because they've asked us to ask some questions. <laughs> but I was, I was wondering if you could tell us where you see Yoga Australia moving in the next 10 or 20 mm. years. I don't really know how they've evolved just yet because I'm not the one who does the, the membership questions and, and so on. So I'm not really up to date with what it actually does do at present. Mm. So I wouldn't like to tread on anybody's toes. However, my, my at this stage, ignorant view is that the association, when it started, we were the grassroots. We were nothing other than the grassroots. It was people who were practising yoga, who loved yoga, who thought it would be a good idea to have an association to protect yoga and to, to give yoga teachers a sense of belonging, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about the College of Surgeons, for instance, they had not much to do with practice in a clinic. Not very much. They might have something, something distant. What I wouldn't like, and I don't know, I'm not saying that this is how it is, but what I would not like is to see the association removed from the grassroots to, you know, the committee becomes incestuous and just <laughs> they change roles and keep going and so on. And You know, I would like there to be more, well, I would like there to be plenty of connection with everyday members and perhaps some way of including them in things like what that mission statement is, you know, ask them how we do it, ask them how we, how we do maintain the integrity and the tradition of yoga, ask them instead of telling them. At the time when I was, you know, the first three years that I was involved, we had to do that because nobody else was doing it at all, but we were the people who were asking. So we were just yoga teachers who were trying to figure out something. And I think it would be a pity if there is a sense, I don't know if there is, but if there's a sense that, oh, I've got all that established now, don't have to do that anymore, I think it would be good if, if there was refreshment, renewal mm-hmm. through, I can't think of a better word for it from grassroots, but that's a bit, <laughs> a bit trite now, but people actually teaching. I think that it is um, pretty much majority run by yoga teachers who volunteer there. Oh, uh, well, yeah, there's always <laughs> that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. There always is that, that um, the only people who are going to give their time to those who are interested enough to volunteer, that's always going to be. I guess the flip side of what you're saying, and this is very hypothetical, but what if the people that they're asking say something like, I want to move beyond the traditions of yoga and bring it into our modern age and forget about all of that stuff? Well, well, then you'd have to split into two associations. (laughs) There'd be some vigorous debates. You'd have to split into neo-yoga and uh, real yoga. (laughs) So I mentioned to you, I think, that if we really want to get to, you talk, You were talking about the nuance, I, I keep thinking 
Of course, I thought you were both girls. <laughs> <laughs> but it was you who said, Rain, that cultural appropriation is a nuanced sort of attempt. Well, there's no nuance at all in the way we call it yoga because yoga doesn't mean yoga. Yoga means, some would say it means joining, others say it means unity, other union, others say, I say it means union. If it means joining, just consider the horse and the cart. Once you've joined the horse to the cart, it's no longer a horse and a cart. It's a single mode of transport. Henry Ford figured that one out. It became the horseless carriage. <laughs> but the horsepower was inside the carriage. Anyway, so if yoga has something to do with unitary consciousness, and you only have to look at the, you only have to look at the sutras to see that it, it doesn't just mean about joining. He's talking about unitary consciousness. What happens when there isn't any thinking in the mind anymore? And he says it from the outset. And that's, that's something, you know, the yoga, yoga sutras are the, probably the only text that is known throughout the, the English-speaking world. They don't know about the Shiva sutras, they don't know about the Brahma sutras, they don't know about this, they don't know about that. They can't read the Sanskrit, but everybody reads the yoga sutras. I've even heard people say, oh, I've read the yoga sutras. Nothing happened because they didn't look at the definitions and the structure. So, you know, if we're going to accept the yoga sutras as the book of yoga. You have to translate it all. You have to translate that word. And I think, personally, I think the best translation of that word for what it means is unitary consciousness. So these are practices of unitary consciousness. So you have to really, if you're really going to forget the nuance and just do it right, really, you'd be translating that word, yoga, a state of unitary consciousness. Come to my classes and let's see what we can do. Uh, haven't met anybody at all who will do that yet. Is that what you aimed to offer in your classes when you were teaching? Well, yes, I did, but mostly in the yoga teacher training. I made sure that the yoga teachers at least were exposed to that for a year. I don't know what they did after they got out from under my thumb, but at least they knew before they left and they had to do an exam. But for, and this would probably have happened to them too, for the people who come to your class they're really not interested. <laughs> They're really not interested in the translations. They're not interested in it. However, if you teach from that understanding, your classes will have something that won't have if you don't even take the trouble to investigate what yoga is from the beginning, from the book that we all work from. We should probably begin to wind things up, but we may have touched on this already, but if you could distill everything that, you've learnt and would like to teach to the world down to one core thing, which could be difficult, but if you could distill everything you, you teach and everything you've learned down to one core essence that you'd like to share with the world, what would that one thing be? Okayness. To be okay. To be okay with how things are. To be okay with how oneself is. And for me, my understanding of okayness is that it comes from stillness. It doesn't come from trying to work out what could be okay, what, what, what's okay and what's not okay. It doesn't come from this is the sort of person that I'm going to be. It doesn't come from this is the sort of yoga class that I'm going to teach. Those things might happen too. But with an understanding that in stillness you see how stuff is and you know that reality is what it is. And if I want to use the G word, what's the G word? God? Yeah, <laughs> which I don't use because it's, 
you know, it sounds religious and, I, it's, and people don't understand. And I, even I don't want to use that word anymore. But if I were to use it just, for instance, if you want to find God, you're not going to find God outside of reality. So my own tradition is Shaivism. And the notion of Shiva is Shiva is all that there is and all that there is not. And that comes, I think, from stillness. doesn't matter what you call it. They call it the S word. <laughs> or the G word, but while God is, you know, somebody up there that you've got an idea in your mind, it's nothing. Meister Eckert said that wouldn't satisfy the spirituality of a fly. So the spirituality of all that there is, including Rain and Joe, where else are you going to find that wholeness, you know? So so it's okay with the wholeness of everything, including the wholeness of the fact that Mataji forgot your name for a moment. That's okay too. <laughs> yeah. So it's very difficult to put that down into one word when people don't have any comprehension of what you're getting at. Oh, it's all okay. Oh, it's all good, you know. Well, bulldust, it isn't all good, but it's okay that it's not all good, you know. Thank you so, so much for all your words of wisdom. It's been a fabulous conversation. I've learnt a lot and I'm sure... For people listening or... I bet you say that to everyone. <laughs> well, we only have interesting guests on who have, like, fantastic wisdom to share. <laughs> oh, that's really nice of you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mataji or Swami Shantananda. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I think it's important that Yoga Australia is made up of many different voices. And it was also interesting to hear just a little bit about the early days of the organisation. For our next episode, we have an interview with Manoj Dia. So I'm really excited about this one. Manoj is a yoga and meditation teacher and the co-founder of A-Space. Manoj is doing amazing work in Australia and all over the world, so it was really great to get the opportunity to speak with him. He's an amazing and inspiring individual. Now that we're back from Japan, I'll be putting out an episode every week till the end of the year, so look out for this episode next week. As always, our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions that have been passed down to us, and we would also like to honour the traditional owners of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Now, we only have one planet. Please, let's look after it. Thank you so, so much for listening. Aroha nui. Big, big love.